I'm so glad to be here and uh, to bring the word from Psalms chapter 55. The sermon title is called Living with Betrayal. And the picture there is the psalm in, in picture form. That is Psalm 55 right there. Somebody comes and is courteous and pleasant and nice to your face. Meanwhile, they have a knife behind them and they're going to get you. Uh, and that's the psalm in, in a picture. A few weeks ago when we were in Rwanda, we were there during the Genocide Memorial Week and uh, I was asked to preach in, in a, a church service and uh, in a Mabla's church. And a Mabla has been here, you've seen him, many of you have met him. And we were with him going to an official Genocide Memorial event where there was about a million people killed in a hundred days. And uh, so when you're talking about genocide in China and all that stuff, those words resonate with us and we have faces to those names. So we were with Amabla a few weeks ago traveling up to his village and, and I had a sermon ready for their church, ready to go, PowerPoint ready to go, and the Holy Spirit corrected me as I was walking around Tagali praying and weeping and the Holy Spirit says, okay, your name, what do they call you? They call you Hope. And what authority do you have? God has given us the authority for the nation, literally, as declared by the top pe- officials in the church, that we have that authority. God says, so if I've given you an authority in this nation, and I call you Hope, you're walking around and praying and weeping, and you don't think you make a difference, then you don't understand what's happening. Hope is walking and weeping and praying. And if you don't think it makes a difference, then you don't understand how I work. So the most significant thing that you and I can do is pray. And so with the Peters family and the situation, if you think you can't make a difference, then you haven't started praying. You start praying, walking and praying, and it makes a difference. So there we were with Amabla going up and... Something about, about sermons. You know, sometimes you hear a sermon and you go, well, that, that wouldn't preach well in, in this setting. A prosperity gospel sermon. Can you preach a prosperity gospel sermon to poor destitute people in the village? It doesn't, it doesn't fly. It doesn't work. So my conviction is that whatever sermon you're going to preach has to be able to be preached in any culture, in any area, at any time, in any place. It has to be able to be preached there. And if you can't, then you should question whether or not you're preaching God's Word. Because that's how he operates. So anyway, I digress. We were uh, with the Mabla, and we were going to an official genocide memorial event in his home village, where uh, in a course of a few days, 25,000 people were killed. And so we go to the site where there's a mass grave, and um, as we're traveling up, Lynn and I are in the vehicle with him, with Simeon, our translator, who's not our translator anymore. He's getting married. He's in Canada. God has provided. We have a new translator. Her name is Sylvie. Her English is impeccable, and her translation apparently is pretty good too. So we're blessed. Um, we're traveling up the road to his village, and he says, yep, I was 16, and uh, this is <clears throat> the road we were running down, and we're, we're trying to get away from the, the killers, and we we ran past this military base over here on the left and the soldiers were there but the government soldiers were actually 
the ones trying to kill us because they wanted to wipe out this group of people. And he said his parents had come down there a day earlier, and if they'd just been a day later, but you see, when you run towards people with a uniform, you don't know if they're there to protect you or to kill you. And so his parents were at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they got killed. And he says he was 16, running down this mountain, and he heard the bullets zinging by their ears as they're going. And trees would blow up as rock-propelled grenades would hit them. He says the road was covered with bodies. This whole road, he says, was just covered with bodies. Old people, young people, children, men, women. Just bodies everywhere. Then they found some food. They thought they'd make a fire to cook some food. And then he pointed to a mountain about a kilometer away. And he says they saw the smoke from the fire. And so they started launching rocket-propelled grenades from there onto us because they knew that they weren't their people so they had to be the other people they were trying to kill and they lived there with the people who killed them and now you make a life Uh, living with betrayal how do you live with betrayal So I preached this sermon in uh, in the church over there. And Amabla, after we were done, he said, thank you. Thank you. That was a good word for us. And so here we are today, and I think it's pretty safe to say that every one of us has tasted betrayal. Some more severe than others, but how severe it is, this is not a competition on severity of betrayal. When you've been betrayed, you've been betrayed. It's that simple. And uh, Jesus Christ knows betrayal. By definition, this is what betrayal is, just so that we're clear on what it is. It's the action of betraying one's country, group, or a person. It's the action. It's not quiet. It's not uh, hidden. It's an action. It's something that happens. Where a country is betrayed, or a group in that country, and we heard testimony about the people in that area in China that officially the country is persecuting or trying to kill a people group. And that's what happened in Rwanda, in the genocide. There's a people group that had been identified and labeled with name tags. And this is, we have decided to get rid of you. Or a person. You see, when you talk people group, it's a person. A person chooses to kill another person. That's how it happens. It's not mass murder, it's murder in mass. It's individual choices and decisions that get made every time to kill. And it's treachery. Now the fellow who wrote Psalms is pretty familiar with betrayal. You see, because it was David who wrote this psalm. And David knew Saul, who was his king. 
who was his, the government leader, who was a church leader, a spiritual leader, and who was a father figure to him. So he was all those things. He was the guy that if you have trouble, he's the guy you'd run to for help. You tell your kids, if you have any problems, you go see this guy. He will help you. That's who Saul was in David's life. And Saul hunted David and tried to kill him for an extended period of time. Saul's best friend was Jonathan. Uh, David's best friend was Jonathan, who was Saul's son. Who, who Jonathan would have been heir to the throne. And Jonathan said, nope, God has put, called you as heir to the throne. I give up my place gladly for you. And that would further enrage Saul, and he would try to kill David. David knew betrayal. But David also knew betrayal from the other side, because... One day when kings are supposed to go to war, he decides not to go to war, and he looks across the home and he sees this woman called Bathsheba. And he invites her to his home. Now in that culture, when the king invites you to his home, it's not a request. It's not a, would you consider coming to my house? No. She would not have had a choice. And when she comes to his home, not having had a choice, and then he has sexual intercourse with her, she again would not have felt she had any choice. And when someone has sex with a woman, and the woman does not have a choice, we have a word for that. It's called rape. Now I see we have children in our midst here, but I think I'm okay to talk this way. Tony, yes? You can explain stuff later if you want. But I do think we need to be real. And I want to be real. So David rapes Bathsheba. Then finds out that she gets pregnant. And so he's betrayed her. And he's betrayed her husband and her family. So then he takes the betrayal a little further. And invites her husband back and tries to trick him into thinking that he's fathering the child. And what doesn't work, then he arranges to have Uriah killed by Joab. And so he's bringing other people into his betrayal. See, the betrayal is an action. There's an activity that happens. It's not something that happens in silence. And so Uriah goes out and he actually carries the note with him uh, that, that's going to get him killed. And David kills Uriah. Later in life, David's son Absalom decides he would like to be king, and so now he faces betrayal from his son. So David has been betrayed by his father, a spiritual leader, government leader, has been betrayed by his son. And David, having from that position, has betrayed others doing exactly the same thing. So we could, I think it's safe to say that David is somewhat of an expert on betrayal. From the having been betrayed and being the betrayer. Now in Psalms, there's sometimes when you read a Psalm, there's a word Selah in there. And Selah, from my understanding, means that you need to stop for a minute because the words are getting in the way. And... Um, I once saw a report about a, a great Canadian dancer. I don't know who it was, but I just I remember the article just really impacted me. And they were asking this dancer who was known for her expression and dance and, and how it would bring people to tears to watch her dance. 
and, and the interviewer says, can you explain to me what you're saying in the dance? And she says to him, if I could explain what I'm saying, then I wouldn't need to dance. You see? The dance expresses something that words can't express. Amen. There are some works of art, when you try to explain them, if you have to explain them, then you don't get it. And Selah means that. It means that there's something so great. Sometimes it's if a happy, happy psalm and you're celebrating. Now it's just time to stop saying things. It's just you need to dance for a bit, okay? Beat the drum. Wail on the guitar. It's just that time to do that. And in a lament or in a... And it, lament was referred to lamentations and lament. This is a lament. In a lament, there's times when the... The pain and the severity of the situation just grips you so much that it's just time to be quiet. Maybe just sit and cry. Or just be quiet. But you're sitting in the middle of the mess. And it's not changing. And you're quiet. Selah. So we're going to read Psalms 55 and refer to a few things. Now we know who's speaking, and we, we know the situations he's been through. And one other thing, sometimes people who've been through this stuff, and we get asked this in Rwanda, is it okay to pray some of these things on, on the perpetrators? or on the, What is it okay to pray or not to pray? And I love the Psalms, because the Psalms gives us words to say that we maybe feel guilty for saying. And God says, just be honest, okay? Tell me. Let's just be real here. And when you're real, I will, I will comfort you. So that's our counsel to people. When you've been abused and mistreated, what do you wish on people? Well, I encourage you, just read the Psalms. Read them out loud. Say them, the Psalms. And allow God to put His words into you that touch your emotions as you say them back to him. And you don't have to make excuses for it. The enemy can't trick you to saying, oh, you can't think that, you can't say that. No, no, these are God's words. This is real. Psalms 55. Uh, at this point, I picture the psalmist being in a state of uh, hopelessness. Maybe perpetual abuse stuck someplace. There's no, no way out. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I'm surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me. And in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. And horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. 
I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Selah. So in his mind, in his imagination, he goes someplace else. We call it dissociation. The situation you're in is so bad that you pretend yourself not being there anymore. And you make up an alternate reality. I hear a few amens here. The Lord knows you and He sees you. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you. A man my equal. My companion, my friend, you, the one I'm supposed to go to for help, the one I'm supposed to be able to trust, the one who knows everything about me, the one I've shared my life with, you. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. You're a Christian. We took communion together. Maybe it's a deacon or an elder or a pastor or a priest. I should be able to trust you. You're the one who's hunting me. You're the one who's hurting me. As children, you go to your parents and your parent is the one who's hurting you. You go to your spouse and the psalmist says, you're the one. It'd be one thing if it was my enemy somebody that everybody agrees is bad, but you're the one. My teacher, my coach, my friend, my companion. Then he says, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive into shul, into hell. For evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. What will we do? He says, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. 
evening and morning and at noon, I will not complain and murmur, and He will hear my voice. Anybody who has been victimized identifies with that. And then the victimized person will say, but you didn't come. You sit here and you say, that was me. I chose evening and morning. I will cry out to the Lord and he will hear me on my voice. But God, it seems you didn't hear my voice. What now? You're there for everybody, but not for me. I must have done something extra special wrong. I'm a special kind of bad. You're not there for me. These are real feelings. I know it and you know it. I'm telling you, the Lord knows it. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For there are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from old. Selah. In the middle of this pain, I can feel the emotion of, I'm going to trust you, I believe you're there for me, but I feel that I just don't see you. I'm just stuck here. And in the middle of that, there are no words. There's just pain. with whom there is no change and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him and he has violated his covenant. This person that I should have trusted has violated that trust. There's a covenant of peace, of trust. First time we went to Rwanda, I could... It blew me away how people couldn't look each other in the face. You go to a gas station or restaurant, whatever, people would not look each other in the face and ask the Lord, what's that? He says, the basic contract of safety is so shattered that people can't even look at each other. When you've been abused and violated by someone that you should be able to trust, it's hard to look into their eyes. Not that I've just read this stuff in the book someplace, you know. (coughs) 
He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Soft, pleasant words, yet cutting. Pleasant, kind words, yet piercing, cutting. Lies. Saying, I love you, but not behaving in a lovely manner. Saying, I care for you, but behaving in a most uncaring manner. And you come to a point of decision. What are you going to do? You see, what what are you going to do? And the psalmist says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. It just feels like crap. And Satan says, God doesn't care about you. It's a lie. And the God that cares about you knows what betrayal is. And he speaks from the other side of the grave. He says, don't give up. In the middle of the lament, he says, don't give up. The highest form of praise and worship I have read is to worship God in the middle of the crap. In the lament. It's one thing to worship him when things are going well and smooth, but when it's going all wrong and all bad, as Job's wife said to him, why don't you curse God and die? He says, I can't. Highest form of praise. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Man, men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. And he concludes, but I will trust in you. But I will trust in you. See, doesn't deny what happened, doesn't deny the situation he's in. He says, but in the middle of all this, I'm making a decision here. I'm going to choose to trust the Lord. If we don't make this choice, we are doomed. If we don't make this choice, then death has its grip, has its grip on you and me. We're going to sing a song after, not yet, a few more things to say. In the song, I'm going to say, death in Christ has lost its grip on me. Right, Greg? In Christ, death loses its grip on you. See, without Christ, when we're betrayed, we will become the betrayer. Guaranteed. And death 
has its grip on us and into our hands and we spread death. So I prayed and asked the Lord to help me understand how does genocide happen? How does death happen like this? So I've looked at scripture and I think God has given me some insight into it. Matthew chapter 15 verse 9 and 10 where Christ is being crucified, or just before, Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over, the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. Jesus said he was God's son, the Messiah. They wanted to be God's son. They wanted to be the Messiah. They wanted to control him. Who do you think you are? They envied him, and they handed him over for execution. So then we back that up a bit. So let's look at the first murder. And when we see the first murder, it'll help us understand every subsequent murder. Because genocide is murder in mass. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain and Abel. They both offered a sacrifice to the Lord. One was accepted, and one was not. Why was the one not accepted? I've read, I've heard sermons and listened and read about why the one was not accepted. I don't think you can give me a biblical reason why the one was not accepted. I don't see it. It's just God didn't accept it. Because God saw something in the heart. We don't know what it is. Don't focus on the outside. Focus on the heart. And God comes to him and says, Aha! I see you have a problem. I've accepted your brother's offering, but not yours. Now, Cain, why don't you come, we'll talk about it, and we'll resolve the issue so that we can straighten this whole thing out. And Cain says, you think so? You want to accept Abel's offering but not mine? Oh yeah, you think so? Watch this, I'll show you. The issue is if you're not right with the Lord. Whatever it is in your heart that nobody sees or knows and can't pinpoint to anything And the Lord comes to you and says, Ah, I see we have a problem. And if you choose to ignore that problem, and then you see people around you who are blessed, who are blessed, then you will say, Ah, anger will rise up. There's the heart of murder right there. The first murder. You're not right with the Lord. He says, Why don't you come? We'll talk. We'll make things right. And you say, No. And then he says, be careful. Satan is crouching at the door and he wants you and he will get you. Because you've given yourself to him by rejecting God. The betrayed becomes the betrayer. And then what what happens? Then Cain told his brother, then Cain told Abel his brother, Oh, I've been talking with God. And it came about when they were in the field together, Cain and Abel, together. 
that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? The truth is, you are your brother's keeper. What does Jesus say? Who is my brother? Those who do the will of God who sent me. Ah, he is his brother's keeper. When somebody says, oh, who is my, who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? Who is my friend? The good Samaritan. You are your brother's keeper. So Cain asks the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? And later in scripture we have the answer to that. Yes, you are. Yes, and God will hold you to account. God will hold us to account for our inactivity. If we don't pray for these people in these situations, it's on us. We are our brother's keeper. Then we, we go to verse 15. And, and so the Lord said to him, Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So God protects Cain. There's mercy. God's mercy is there. If we just go to him, there's mercy there. So Cain says, it's too difficult what you've laid on me. He says, anybody touches you, I'll kill seven of them. Sevenfold vengeance. You see, but so quickly it degenerates. Then we go to chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, Lamech took himself two wives. God didn't say have as many wives as you want. No, 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 no. Just because there's multiple wives doesn't mean that's God's plan. It's not God's plan. God's plan was for one wife. But Lamech didn't care about God's plan. He had more than one wife. So then what happens is in verse 19, Lamech took to himself two wives. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, you wives of mine. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me. He's bragging. Cain killed Abel. Somebody wounded me, I killed him. And a boy for striking me. And then he says to his wives, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, where have you got that number 7 and the number 77? Where else do you hear that? How often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? No. 70 times 7 or 77 times. It means an infinite number of times. What Lamech was saying is that if you try and do me a dirty, I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to annihilate you, your whole family. It's genocide. Genocide requires government participation, so it's improper to use the word to apply to that, but that's the idea behind it. You see, when we reject God, Satan is crouching at the door. If Cain's sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Oh, God is only going to judge you seven times if you do bad, but me... (laughs) You better be careful of me. It's going to be 77. Then just a little later, we have uh, Seth has a son. 
and his name is Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In verse 26. Which tells me that before that they were not calling upon the name of the Lord. Cain was not calling upon the name of the Lord. He rejected the Lord. Lamech was not calling upon the Lord. He rejected the Lord. Multiple wives, murder. And then somebody had the idea, maybe we should ask God what we should do. If we do not go to the Lord, sin is crouching at the door. Satan is crouching at the door. In every situation, in every circumstance, Satan is crouching at the door. So the last line in the Psalms was, but I will trust in you. Doesn't deny what happened. Remember the Apostle Paul, he thought he was doing God's work, and he would go from home to home with lists of people, drag them out of the house and kill them thought he was doing God's work. And how do we know he was that and he did that? Because he tells us. He tells us that's who he was. He says, this is who I am. But in the middle of me doing that, Christ saved me. This is so amazing. Paul can't talk about how amazing it is, God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, again and again, because he knew how he deserved to die. The betrayer who comes to Christ is washed clean. Some of the betrayed people are not prepared to forgive. Satan is crouching at the door. Don't deny what happened. Sometimes a good therapy is to Write down name of offender on top and then write down all the ways they've offended you and betrayed you and hurt you. You maybe need more than one page. When you're finished, you're going to decide what to do with that. Are you going to carry that? You've been carrying it. Or are you going to give it to Jesus? There's a wonderful therapy to write it all down, to pray, then to get out a book of matches and burn it. Nobody will ever see it. And as the fire and the ashes go up, watch your pain go away. I've given this to Jesus. I'm done with that. And the Lord says to you, you can't carry this burden. He says, let me carry it for you. Isaiah chapter 53. Who is saying to you, let me carry it for you? Who is saying, you don't have to carry it? Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Surely. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. 
all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Death in Christ has lost its grip on me. I don't need vengeance. I don't need to carry this anymore. I can't make right the wrongs that I've done. I can confess. I can repent. That in Christ, the grip of death goes away. And life comes. And hope comes. Father, you love us so very much. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the cross. And Father, I just pray that where the enemy has our minds in a fog and deceived, I ask you, Jesus, to clear the fog and to declare this is the truth. The truth of being free in Christ. That we can't do anything and don't have to do anything. We just have to acknowledge it's you, Lord. We have to bring our baggage to you, our garbage to you. And then we dump it. And you say, okay, let me take that. Let me take that. It's too heavy for us to carry. You do not want us to carry this. You have never wanted us to carry it. And today you're saying that burden you have, you bring it to me. I will set you free. It's like being born again. It's like being washed whiter than snow. That's, Father, that is your plan for us, to wash us. Help us, Jesus.